Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Valeria Lasopinara, Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at UC Davis. Her research investigates the durability of fiber-reinforced composites for aerospace, civil, naval, and wind energy applications. She is the founder and principal investigator of the laboratory called Advanced Composites Research, Engineering, and Science Laboratory. More recently, she shifted her focus to studying mycelium and its potential use cases for addressing a plethora of environmental challenges. In this episode, we mainly talk about her work with mycelium, what it is, and the importance of creativity and innovation in solving our environmental crises. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Valeria Lasoponara. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Brenton Keller, for having me and everybody who's listening. We'd love to start off with hearing a little bit more about your story, especially given the fact that you're an aerospace engineer studying mycelium. So um, I got to this point through a very circuitous, you know, um, path. So I am an aerospace engineer by training. All my degrees are in aerospace engineering. And... um, I have uh, worked on uh, uh, composite materials, so the typical materials you will find in uh, uh, airplanes, in spaceships, uh, satellites, um, uh, bridges, all kind of different uh, ships, and so on. So, and those are all fossil-based uh, materials, typically carbon fibers, fiberglass, and uh, plastics. And so I've been working on that for uh, probably a couple of decades by then. And then uh, it just happens that I was interested into an application that was different, which consisted of uh, uh, better fitting uh, bike helmets. We are in, uh, I am in Davis, California, USA. It's uh, an extremely bike friendly uh, community. We actually have the first uh, bike lanes uh of United States. Really we are the yeah. first city town in the United States with bike lanes from the 70s. And um, my family has, uh, we've been biking to their schools and biking through campus and through the city uh, for basically since we moved here. My kids were born after moving here. So my daughter is African-American and uh, part of her um, hair is, you know, it's, uh, it's a different texture. It's very difficult to fit it under uh, children's helmets. And so we, uh, uh, another mother of African-American child and I got together uh, through a parent group and decided to start a company that would actually look at uh, bike helmets that fit better children who don't fit under regular bike helmets. The children bike helmets are a one size fits all. And we were looking at not just African-American girls, but also uh, children that have ponytails, uh, might be wearing a, a scarf or have large heads, small heads. And uh, we were a company of two. She is my uh, co-founder, I'll, I'll mention her here, Rachel Fault Cook. And the business person, and I was the only engineer. So as we were trying to find uh, the cheapest way to do this work out of pocket, um, I started experiencing with uh, this uh, as cheap as possible, mix and pour polyurethane. Um, And uh, things seemed to be going fine. And then uh, we basically realized that that was not working anymore. I was not able to control the process of the foaming. 
And at that point, because I had to do a lot of work with polyurethane, I realized that this is a very toxic material um, that is using um, a particular catalyst. What is needed for the reaction is a material that is uh, uh, World One uh, chemical warfare. It's called phosgene. It's one of those things that shows up in movies, killing all the soldiers. Jeez. We have to use that in order to create the catalyst for polyurethane. And we don't do this work in the United States. We do it in the global south countries where mm -hmm. people are exposed to the dangers and the toxicity of this material. And eventually this material gets to us. So there is all this thing about, I don't want to breathe that material. I don't want to feel responsible for people making that material for me. I need to find a different way to work around this. And I came across this um, material that is uh, actually um, um, Grow It Yourself. It's by a company called Ecovative Design uh, that was funded uh, back in uh, 2007 by these two engineering students of uh, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic University Institute in uh, upstate New York. And they had the idea of using mushroom mycelium uh, to make uh, foam, a foam material that is completely biodegradable. They use biomass, and mycelium is the, the root system of mushrooms that will basically uh, occupy the space in the biomass and bind to the biomass, making this very resistant uh, foam that is completely biodegradable. So I started working with that, um, in my kitchen, in my laundry room, because I can start up with basically zero funding. And then I was having all kinds of problems with sterility because I was following the step-by-step -step instructions. And they basically said, oh, you can you know, use alcohol spray to clean up this thing. But the reality is you're competing constantly with uh, most sports that are in the environment. And I am in Central Valley, California, which is the agricultural um, mothership of the entire United States. So we have all kinds of agricultural spores everywhere. So I could not get this material to work every time I was introducing a structural filler and I was using something that was, again, biodegradable. I wanted to do something different than Ecovative is doing. So after, I don't remember how many trials, we basically decided, okay, it's time to go. Nothing is happening. We cannot get any funding. Uh, shut down the company. Mm -hmm. And that was December 2019. Good timing. <laughs> <laughs> we would have shut down in any case because of the pandemic. And so it was something that we really, I really didn't let go. I had this idea that, you know, this is such a good material. I want to experiment with that. I really don't understand what I'm doing wrong. And so when we shut down uh, the University of California, system um, in Davis shut down when the city of basically of Davis shut down and the entire state of California shut down. Um, I was kind of uh, very, you know, everybody was depressed, feeling like we were trapped into this situation. And I decided, you know, this is the time in which I can get myself out of this uh, hole and do something that I'm interested about. Uh, my son told me that before I started working again on my serum composites, I was espresso depresso mom because <laughs> I'm Italian actually, yeah. and I drink espresso like crazy. But the everybody was in a state of depression, and to be honest, it was a really 
it was a dark moment and a very dark <laughs> moment, very long for many of us. Mm-hmm. And so I basically found this inspiration. I'll keep working on it on my own time, buying things as cheap as possible. I found out that you can actually sterilize using an inst- instant pot, which I bought on sale on um, you know Amazon in December of 2020 for 60 bucks. Wow. And yeah, the, there is a, a group of researchers from, uh, I think, uh, Dakota State University, um, and I hope I'm getting the name right, uh, who find out that you can use uh, instant pot to sterilize even E. coli, really? do all kinds of biological experiments. And that was the, the point in which things turned because... Um, I didn't have access to equipment, uh, although my colleagues have autoclaves, but when you're going hundreds of times figuring out, is this working? Is that working? You don't want to constantly say, hey, I want to try this yeah. because that didn't work. Oh, I want to try this because that didn't work. And so there was also the fact that because we are, again, in Central Valley, California, I wanted to use a different feedstock for the biomass. Uh, and so Ecoveti uses hemp uh, biomass. Uh, we didn't have access to hemp biomass easily. And I was thinking, well, you know, let me ask around. And there was a professor from uh, bioagriculture engineering at UC Davis who told me, oh, I have these two big crates of uh, almond mm-hmm. uh, biomass. Why don't you, you know, try them? I mean, I'm not using it anymore. Our name is uh, Tina Jail. Um, and so I started using almond biomass. And then suddenly, you know, again, things seem to be working. And then there is a stop because something is missing. So the almond biomass has a lot of carbon. But to grow my mycelium, you need uh, both carbon and nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And it has to be a particular ratio. And people who do this on a regular basis, biologists or scientists, they know what that ratio is. I had to figure it out. So mm-hmm. it was, okay, let's try nitrogen-rich nutrients. And so I started working with uh, um, fava beans. Um, because I am from Italy, we use <laughs> fava beans in our diet. And uh, I know that it's used as cover crop. It's full of nitrogen and it replenishes the soil. So this is why it's very popular in California. But apparently not many people know what to do with the fava beans themselves because they don't eat them. Mm-hmm. They sell them at the market, but then they're like, oh, nobody knows the recipes. Like, I can give you, you know, tons of recipes in Italian. I <laughs> do fava beans. And so I realized that uh, mycelium really like fava beans. So I have this internal joke, uh, because I also use coffee grounds, I have this other internal joke that the f- uh, mycelium likes the Mediterranean diet yeah. because <laughs> loves beans, loves the coffee, you know, what's wrong. <laughs> and this is very well, you know, it's a very healthy Mediterranean diet, not only for people, but also apparently for mushrooms. And uh, yeah, so things started getting uh, into good shape. And um, and then uh, I, I was uh, interested in another aspect of um, uh, this type of research. So I keep reading about the structural properties and the things that can be done with uh, foam based on mycelium. But I kept coming across these other articles that talked about bioremediation. And bioremediation is a way to clean pollutants from an environment using um, 
biomaterials, biological materials, and one of these materials is uh, mycelium. And so I was very curious about that. I was like, wow, that's a great idea. Too bad I don't know any biology. <laughs> so <laughs> at that point, I get emailed by um, this uh, woman. Her name uh, before marrying is uh, Vanessa Salandes, who told me, hey, I'm a biology major. My friend here, Renee, told me that uh, I should try to do some research on campus. Can I volunteer in your lab? There you go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. We got the biologists on board. Yeah. And so then I was asking around, hey, you know, I there is this professor from uh, biological and agricultural engineering. Um, basically, I asked him, hey, do you know anybody? Are you interested in doing bioremediation? And he said, no, no, I want to retire, but I can send you to these other people that I know. Uh, Amir Ta and uh, Nitin Nitin, two professors from uh, food science and technology. And so talking with them, we started tackling the problem of uh, antibiotics and antimicrobial remediation. And I will tell you more about that. And we started working together using a SIG grant that was $20,000 uh, from the University of California, the Green Initiative Fund, which we were able to stretch for a year and a half um, to support the cost of training on mass spectrometry, a little bit of funding, a little bit of uh, student support. That's and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. There's a lot to go off of there. Yeah. Um, before we dive more into like the research, could you briefly explain the process of growing the mycelium and the difference between mycelium versus the fruiting body mushroom? And then also, what is biomass and how does that play into the growing process? So, um, the mycelium is a, a living organism, and I look at it as an animal. So, uh, fungi actually have their own kingdom, mm -hmm. and people say, well, they're closer to plants or they're closer to animals. I actually consider this material closer to my pet hamster <laughs> with its personality. So... <laughs> Um, depending on the food, you will have different, um, um, different strengths. Any, any living organism needs food and mycelium generally decomposes and eats, um, lignin based, basically wood, wood mm -hmm. type of materials. You find them on the forest floors. They are basically breaking down anything that falls on the floor and, um, because I'm not able to grow mycelium in a forest floor, I need to grow it in an environment that is somewhat controllable. Mm -hmm. And what it needs is this basically waste, agricultural waste that is full of the nutrients that um, it needs. And it's, uh, again, carbon-based and nitrogen-based. So carbon-based, it's coming from, in my case, uh, almond shells, uh, oak pellets, wood pieces, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, if I if I were growing these commercially as a mushroom enterprise, uh, then you would possibly grow them on logs, okay, on yep. uh, trees that fall, and you know, and the stuff is growing there. In fact, if you go in a forest, look at where the fallen trees are, mm -hmm. you will probably look around and see that some species of mushrooms are actually growing on the logs. Yeah. Uh, and so the nitrogen is another very important uh, chemical that is needed to support life. And it comes from various uh, sources, in my case, basically cover crop and coffee grounds. And then 
the challenge is to create a combination that works for the particular species that I'm working with. Uh, I work with commercial mushrooms, and in the literature, there typically are three of them that people keep studying and studying and mentioning. One is oyster, the other one is reishi, and then we have shiitake. And if you are uh, a mushroom lover, these are good, good (laughs) medicinal (laughs) mushrooms, but they're also edible. So... Because again, I didn't want to grow a toxic mushroom in my house. A lot of this stuff happens in my office at home. I don't want to deal with anything that is not uh, edible. Mm-hmm. So at the worst case scenario, I only have to deal with you know some mold that comes from the environment, but it's not that I'm growing something that will take over like uh, The Last of Us, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sci-fi show taking over the brains of people and you know yeah. uh that's a sci-fi show it's never yeah. going to happen it actually <laughs> happens on insects not on humans yeah no i've yeah. seen the pictures and of the bugs yeah the- exactly so the process requires uh enough nutrients uh, coming from basically a feedstock material uh, agricultural waste in my case um and you need to have enough water then environmental conditions like um you cannot have sunlight. Uh, mycelium doesn't grow well in sunlight. So I generally use uh, the um, the plastic bags that come from Amazon shipments instead of okay. recycling those. Those are really good because they have the gray liner that kind of keeps a little bit of heat. Yeah. So instead of dumping them in a recycling bin, I actually use them. So my office at home is becoming a little bit of an interesting place full of boxes and, <laughs> and uh, plastic bags from Amazon. And then uh, temperature. So I'm trying to do the process in the most sustainable way possible. And I realized that the top shelf in, the, in my office at home has excellent conditions. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And so it's all plastic eating. In the evening, that's the warmest uh well the warmest room in the house and it really works with the species i'm working with okay so other people use environmental chambers i have an environmental chamber in my in my lab but the idea is that this should be something that requires the least amount of food and uh, for example water uh, I'm actually been growing fava beans and I do not irrigate them because I plant them in the fall just before rain season mm-hmm. and then I harvest in the spring. No water, no irrigation water whatsoever. Because again, the idea is to consume the least amount of resources to that do one. this, which is supposed to be an environmentally friendly process. If it becomes very expensive, then it's a, you know, it's not worth it. It's a trade-off. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely like an important piece too about the scalability. And if you can keep it cheap at the beginning, yes, it's very appealing, especially with the home growing. Because a lot of people, when I first heard about, like I have friends that grow mushrooms and they're like, yeah, it's super easy. You can just get them online anywhere. And it takes 10 minutes to kind of figure out that initial hump. And then you're kind of picking it up from there. One more question before we get into some of the current work. You talked about inspiration and how that was like a big part of this project. Could you speak a little bit to how you're splitting your time from your more traditional works and the mycelium work right now within your research? So at this point, um, in this point in time, I actually have no funding for the more traditional materials. I have 
uh, one PhD student who was about to finish, uh, one master's student who has already finished, and then I have a, a current PhD student who's uh, working on more traditional materials. And so because the projects are uh, pretty much not funded, then I'll, I'll just make sure to uh, guide them through graduation. Mm -hmm. And if the project keeps not being funded, that will be the end of it. Yeah. It's going to be a publication, it's going to be thesis, the students will graduate, uh, but if there is no funding, then if I'm working for free, then I would rather do something that I feel very strong about, yeah. uh, which requires, again, materials that do not pollute the earth and they're fully biodegradable. So none of this project, uh, basically, um, the project's funding that I have right now are supporting uh, some students and research engineer and uh, supplies, but there is no funding in terms of summer salary to me. So basically mm -hmm. I've been working for free and I'm happy to work for free, but only for things that matter to me. Definitely. Otherwise, you know, somebody should pay me for <laughs> this. So yeah. It's basically donation of my time. Yeah. So, do you see mycelium becoming an accepted material in academia? Because I think we're starting to see the use case of mushrooms for like psychedelic therapies. And like, Davis just opened up a new institute for that. Do you think material sciences will start to accept mycelium so you could actually research this in a more traditional academic setting? So uh, mycelium has been in academia for a long time, just mm -hmm. not in the United States necessarily. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So there are books about fungal bioremediation that are edited by professors in um, uh, in Mexico, in uh, India. Um, there are articles uh, that are published from researchers in Belgium, UK, uh, Austria, it's uh, Italy, so it's not uh, in the mainstream in U.S., mm -hmm. but it is getting more and more in the mainstream in uh, other institutions across the world, which I found very interesting because we have always had this um, idea that U.S. is the forefront of ecological uh, innovation, especially the state of California, mm -hmm. but actually when you start looking at some of these uh, techniques, then... Uh, I think what's happening is a lot of countries in the world have a lot more at stake because yeah. their land has been polluted. They have, they are so exposed to uh, climate change. Uh, they're losing land and uh, food and water. And it's uh, a lot more sensitive to them to get something going as fast as possible and as affordably as possible because most of these techniques are actually relatively affordable yeah. with respect to, for example, uh, if you think about clear, landfill cleanup, uh, you would remove that soil and move it somewhere else, but it's really not solving the problem. So when you are living on that soil, the landfill, then you're like, oh, okay, I need to do something a little faster than just, you know, um, trying to clean up the place, uh, the soil. And again, there is, um, I think there are, it's interesting to see the, how international this type of research is mm -hmm. and how published it is in other international countries. Yeah, definitely. Fifth the US, if you can't make a patent, it's hard to research it. <laughs> yeah, so Ecovative Design has actually patented a lot really? of, yeah. Interesting. But when you work in academia, as long as you're not using those processes, you can publish. There, yeah. So, yeah. 
But again, they actually, um, from the standpoint of structural materials, they were the innovators because nobody was doing any of these before they incorporated back in 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting to me that they won a prize in Europe. When okay. they started pitching this idea, it was Europe, the, the continent, that started paying more attention. Yeah. And eventually now they're, uh, they're becoming more and more in the mainstream as a, as a company. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So I guess going back into what we had initially talked about, we'd love to hear more about the current research you're doing within mycelium, especially the wind turbines and the bioremediation. So um, I'm looking at it from, again, two different perspectives. One that is a very... Um, it's more comfortable, let's say, because coming from uh, structural materials and lightweight structural materials, working with materials from structural applications, it's, it's you know, it, this is biology for materials, but in any case, it's, uh, it's a lot easier for me. And so... Um, one of the uh, one of the projects back in April 2021 was to look at this material as um, um, for rapid prototyping for electronics. So there is a professor at uh, UC Davis. Her name is uh, Dr. Katia Vega in the Department of Design, and her student Eldi Lasaro uh, was a Master of Fine Arts. Uh, she's now doing her PhD at uh, University of Colorado Boulder. So they contacted me because they were trying to replace the plastics that you use for barboards with mycelium composites. And when I started working with them and started doing structural performance studies, I realized that they were very weak. Mm -hmm. I mean, it basically, it was very, very easy to break them. Yeah. Uh, and so at that point, I was like, okay, let's start doing something different. Let's start putting this in between two plies of uh, two pieces of plywood and make it a more, you know, uh, stiff material in bending. Uh, and then realize that plywood is not biodegradable because it's full of glue and uh, requires formaldehyde, which is uh, nice, another nice toxic <laughs> material. And at that point, I was thinking, okay, we need to look at other materials. And so I uh, started thinking about bamboo because I, I saw this... Uh, episodes on uh, home on uh, apple tv where they built this beautiful house in bali using just mm. bamboo and wow. it's a three stories house really <laughs> and so again we're looking at international knowledge that yeah. we don't incorporate we don't have large amounts of bamboo plants in united states mm -hmm. it's typically in tropical areas and so I was thinking, well, if they can build a three-story house, we sure can build something with it. <laughs> We're using the Definitely. mycelium as the basically the the plastic that fills the spaces of the bamboo. And the College of Engineering had this, uh, they called it Pitch Fest. They basically, we have uh, Dean Corsi here at, the, at UC Davis College of Engineering who had this idea of uh, funding uh, seed grants, small pots of money for projects that might be interesting and uh, innovative. And so I got together with my collaborator and friend from civil engineering. Uh, his name is Michele Barbato. Michele is uh, male, by the way, Mike uh, is another Italian guy. And so we said, okay, we're just going to pitch to the College of Engineering the idea of doing this uh, uh, bamboo uh, and mycelium wind turbine blades. So the wind turbine blades are an interesting structural problem because 
we are always used to the very large ones. If you drive down in uh, Southern California, you will see uh, hills full of winter bee blades next to, close to uh, Palm Springs in yeah. the Mojave Desert, and they are just beautiful. Um, we have many countries where they're used. In Denmark, they have uh, you know a lot of offshore turbines. But the problem with the wind turbine blades is that the blades are actually not biodegradable. They end up in the landfill. And again, because they require uh, plastic materials that are fossil-based, I mean, um, they basically don't have an easy way to be incorporated. Uh, Europe actually just uh, was able to push some innovation there because they, um, they forbade... Uh, landfilling wind turbine blades and companies really? in Europe decided that maybe it's time to come up with a chemical process to do this job yeah. and they just did. Oh, amazing. Yep. Not in US. <laughs> 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 you go in Wyoming, there is a picture I found of tractors that are landfilling wind turbine blades. Hmm. And so, of course, I didn't know that European companies were doing this, but at the time we're like, okay, we're going to say, hey, it's completely biodegradable. And then there is also the material aspect because balsam wood is a very typical component of wind turbine blades. It's very light wood, light yeah. weight wood. But it's uh, mostly logged into the Amazon forests of Ecuador in indigenous land. Yeah. And there are all kinds of problems with that, obviously. And so I was thinking, okay, we're not going to do anything with balsam wood. We're replacing it with bamboo. Bamboo is a very good structural material. grows very fast. We're going to biodegrade everything. And uh, the College of Engineering bought it. And actually, we were able to demonstrate the uh, construction of a wind turbine blade uh, for a 400 watts uh, commercial turbine. We're going to replace the other blades, but we're also going to scale it up to a one kilowatt mm -hmm. turbine because I think there is the potential to make impact on uh, uh, what they call distributed wind energy for small communities, for rural communities that don't have access to easy and cheap power, we mm -hmm. could have a number of these wind turbines that could be uh, powering their schools or their homes. Uh, and another aspect I was thinking of is for uh, disaster relief. Yeah. So when we have situations like you know, what happened in Puerto Rico, where they had two hurricanes back yeah. to back, they were not able to build the infrastructure, the power infrastructure, and there still are a lot of problems right now. An island like Puerto Rico could be, you know, basing uh, their power needs on solar and wind. Mm -hmm. And this could be something that eventually we could, you know, package in a very way, easy way to, you know, ship it and install it. And then it's not going to pollute anybody's land and soil and water. Yeah. So, For reference, you're talking about scaling up to a one kilowatt turbine? What are the kilowatts or like the larger turbines that I think oh, more people? Oh, you're looking the megawatts. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think structurally is ever going to get to that point. Yeah. Because yeah. how long are those turbine blades? For like the a seven forty seven. Yeah. Tip okay. to tip. So yeah. What do you think? So you think the largest is going to be about a kilowatt? So the, yeah, and so what I'm thinking of is something of the order of I don't know maybe six or seven feet. Okay. And then what? Uh, yeah. What could that? A couple power? of meters. What could that, how many like would you need of those to power, say, a, a small home? 
uh, you will need a lot. So there are, uh, I have this idea, uh, I have this picture in my head of this uh, school in Alaska where they had four or five of the 10 kilowatts powering mm -hmm. the school. Okay. So that's the kind of, you know, you would have to yeah. start looking into the 100 kilowatt mm -hmm. area, but uh, there are small communities where they've been able to do uh, powering of their basically uh of a lot of their buildings, uh, city halls, etc., just with a small number of 10 kilowatts. Okay, yeah. So we're going to go to the one kilowatt scale next. Uh, and again, there is all kind of design um, complexity, how tall is the tower, how long is the wind turbine blade. Mm -hmm. We're working with a professor from uh, uh, mechanical and aerospace engineering here at UC Davis. Her name is uh, Dr. Kamli Badria. She's advising one of our students in the project to design mm -hmm. this material more aerodynamically. Uh, so again, you're, you know, even though we're doing biology, we're doing aerodynamics. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, we have a long way to go. Yeah. No. Figuring out even when do you stop? I mean, when is this thing going to shatter? At which mm -hmm. wind speeds? Uh, and we're going to test uh, the actual turbine in the steel lab, which is an uh, there is a, a research center, a research, research facility that is uh, on campus, but in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, we are going to be hosted by Dr. Vinod Narayanan to basically go there and trying to do this uh, installation without um, shattering the beautiful solar <laughs> collector that he has there <laughs> and without damaging or harming his research personnel yeah. there. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that's for pressure testing, again, like how much wind it can withstand? Yeah, no, to actually have the, the actual turbine there and mm -hmm. to see what kind of power it generates and when it's going to break. Yeah. Is it a wind tunnel, like similar to the... No, it's it's really going to be, we build the tower, we put that, we're going to put all the, you know, the mm -hmm. to monitor how much generation there is and then see what happens. We can do... We can do static tests. We okay. can basically make the blades and load them mm -hmm. in the lab, but there is nothing like the actual conditions yeah. to see what happens. Yeah, that makes sense. So we'll be wearing hard hats and, <laughs> 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 and hide behind the building. Yeah. <laughs> so. OSHA will be okay with everything. Yeah, yeah. And it's students. Oh, my God. Don't, don't hurt the students. <laughs> yeah. I have a quick question. So you mentioned about using bamboo. Are all the mushrooms that are being commercially used right now for growth, are they all able to bind to that composite equally? Because I know that was something we talked about, or we had talked about in your uh, the talk that we found you through, was that sometimes the mycelium doesn't bind to that initial composite well, and that could be an issue for when you're trying to make it biodegradable, you're trying to make it environmentally friendly. Some of those things that are very sustainable might not bind well. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so bamboo is antifungal. So you're trying to <laughs> touch it to a fungus. Uh, so that has not been the easiest thing ever, but we have found a way to basically, we have a layer of material that the mushroom will, the mycelium will bind to and that the bamboo will bind to. Mm -hmm. So we have a kind of a intralayer between the two. We're also using uh, biodegradable uh, glue, um, which was suggested to us by a visitor um, 
who came to talk with with us in uh, for my class, and uh, he's a backpacker. So he said, "Oh, you should try pitch racing, uh, pitch racing glue, which is." Uh, a biodegradable glue that is made with uh, pine resin and charcoal, yeah. which apparently has been used by indigenous people for the longest time. So yeah. it's kind of nice to use materials that are knowledge that is not in the, okay, I'll say it, what people's knowledge. Yeah. Uh, but we're actually trying, again, we're trying to do something good for the world and uh, we'll uh, listen at, the knowledge of experts, mm-hmm. non-traditional wow. experts in the mainstream yeah. academia are traditional experts of, you know, many walks of life. Yeah, no, there's thousands of years of knowledge. Indigenous, yeah, indigenous knowledge is, we we are always very grateful when uh, people share this knowledge with us. Yeah, definitely. Are some of your students now getting their master's like, or their master's thesis or PhD thesis, is that in mycelium? Like, uh, the, not right now. Not right now. Okay. So it's been interesting to the recruitment of students. I have a, a, a master's student who's finishing up, but uh, it's been interesting to actually recruit undergraduate students who are mm-hmm. very uh, environmentally uh, sensitive and they all got very excited. So we generally... You know, we generally have uh, them on a volunteer basis, but we do have some projects where there is a bit of funding towards the students. Okay. And so when we built uh, the wind turbine blade, we had student, uh, a student mechanical engineering, um, one in chemical engineering, uh, and several in mechanical and aerospace engineering. Okay. And now I just recruited a student who has double major aerospace civil engineering. Okay. Uh, because one of the projects also with Dr. Barbato is that we're going to try to build um, sustainable sidewalk pavers um, to reduce the amount of concrete that you put in the mm-hmm. pavers and decarbonize the construction industry using less concrete or maybe material that does not have any concrete. Wow. But because you're competing with concrete, the the stakes are extremely high in terms of how much load you can carry. Yeah. And so we're looking at sidewalk pavers because they don't require high-strength concrete, but mm-hmm. these materials, is difficult to even get it to comparable to low-strength concrete. So it requires a really different way of designing with it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, going back to some of the other things you were talking about, we hit the wind turbine blades, now, could you just speak a little bit more about the bioremediation and the projects going on there, trying to clean up the soils and the waters? Mm-hmm. So the bioremediation has been, to be honest, is the project I feel most strongly about. Um, again, having worked with chemicals for a long mm-hmm. time, I know that it, they are affecting our um, health, the oceans. You know, we're talking about microplastics, uh, fish eating the microplastic. We eat the fish and, you know, we have all kind of food chains uh, issues. Um, and uh, so I started working with the antibiotics uh, project. So the uh, one of the things that, I always remember from my mom, try not to use antibiotics as mm-hmm. often. And yeah. 
that was what our generation thought, you know, try not to use medicines unless you're really, really sick. And so the problem is we've been using antibiotics in uh, fields that have really no reason to have antibiotics, like, oh, you want to wash your hands. Well, antibiotics cleaner, antibiotics laundry detergent, and so on. And then the other thing is we have it, obviously, for livestock, and some of the antibiotics we give to livestock is the same class that we're using for humans. And because we, um, obviously, livestock needs to basically poop, and we use the poop for the, their manure for uh, fertilization of mm -hmm. the fields, you got the runoff, and then that stuff goes into the, the waste stream and the waters, and it creates um, antimic antimicrobial resistant yeah. bacteria. And... Anybody who's had an infection at some point knows that sometimes the antibi antibiotic doesn't work. Yeah. And so you go back and say, oh, I'm still having ear infection. Can you give me something else? And they're like, oh, you can try that. You can try this off. And so when I started working on antibiotics, I really didn't know how bad the problem was. And it's pretty bad. Uh, so... There is a recent publication of the UN Environmental Pro Environment Program, but this has been going on for decades. Uh, the antimicrobial resistance uh, is forecasted to be the first cause of death by 2050. Really? And so it's one of the top 10 global threats. And, you know, we're thinking about COVID. I'm like, this is not, I mean, COVID is in a different scale of danger with yeah. respect to this. So uh, I'm just reading this document here from uh, the 2023, February 2023 report. Um, we're going to have a shortfall of uh, uh, gross domestic product by of USD $3.4 trillion annually. And we'll push 24 million more people in extreme poverty because, poverty because when they're sick, they lose jobs and there's going to be all kinds of consequences. This was by when? Uh, this 2050, so one generation. Yeah. Okay. So you have this kind of threat to global existence. Um, and, um, you know, there are uh, regulations, there are more regulations for companies and dairies, for example, livestock, uh, to not, you know, to make sure that there are no runoffs of manure. But then you have situations like the... Uh, rain that we had in California, in Central Valley, which is the location with the most number of dairies of U.S., uh, where who knows where that water went. Yeah. And the regulations are not very uh, stringent when you have runoff. It's $150 fine per day if you happen not to control the where that manure went. It has nothing to do with how much runoff you've had. It's just... One farm, $150, that's it? Yeah, if you happen to contaminate, uh, if you happen to contaminate <laughs> municipal water with the runoff from your pen. That's wild. Yeah, and so, you know, you're start thinking about all of that. And the main thing is, it's very easy to get depressed when you think about, okay, these are the kind of problems facing uh, us um, on Earth, planet Earth. We're all in it together. But... I, I would like to instead say, you know, it's a call for action. I mean, you're, if you're, you feel like uh, this is the mission to save Earth and, you know, you want to spend some uh, 
effort to that and you're multidisciplinary and you're not in a in a box of oh I'm an aerospace engineer I cannot do biology or I cannot you know I am a biologist I cannot do this or mm -hmm. whatever um, so time to get some work done definitely uh, so that's one of the items so antibiotics remediation we have uh, we have actually a study where we were able to reduce the concentration of antibiotics in synthetic water so in the lab within three days wow and we've been trying to publish the study for 16 months. Whoa. Got rejected five times because, oh, why don't you have more results? Well, the entire study was $2,500. That's the money we had to pay for the training on the mass spectrometry. Mm -hmm. And another reviewer was saying, oh, but you're using precious mushroom. Well, I can tell you that when you're dying in a hospital because of sepsis, maybe you don't need to necessarily eat that mushroom. You want that mushroom to save your life. Mm. Yeah. So... That's, so, that's crazy. Yeah, it's very, it's very, you know, we're like, so it's been, it's been interesting to try to get some of these ideas in the publication stream. And again, other countries get published these type of research papers on a regular basis, but not us. Could you publish no. internationally? Um, we submit the, some of the reviewers are coming from US, but mm -hmm. we were not, we have submitted to five different journals yeah. and rejected every time. So, is it mainly just the, the size that they're not? Because I I thought I mean obviously we have a very small understanding. But my understanding for when the reviewers give feedback, it has to be feedback that can get worked on. Uh, they reject it without giving us the the ability to um, to edit, resubmit. Oh. So it's been very interesting, and they're like, oh, there are very few uh, very few samples. Well, it's two hundred eighty three samples. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and it's three days only i mean some of the some of the uh, mushrooms didn't work well we want to see mycelium didn't work for some of the classes of antibiotics we would like to know why yeah. but they they yeah. basically say oh you asked to explain why well you know we just <laughs> <laughs> it's brand new yeah. it's, it's a brand new study $2,500 again $2,500 for basically a study that took the the actual test took about uh, two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, Vanessa was in the lab nonstop for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, but you want they everybody wants to know everything. Well, this is step one. We have a proof of concept. I think it's worth investigation. If that paper doesn't get published, the USDA is not going to give us a grant to continue working on this. But yeah. we're doing so much stuff for free. They're like, okay, so yeah, <laughs> find out another thing. Um, and then more recently, we've been working um, to look at other contaminants. So I started, I, I was put in touch with the California Indian Water Commission, uh, Randy Yonemura and Atta Stevenson. They are uh, indigenous uh, scientists, and they're very concerned because some of the land in uh, indigenous space is being uh, um, basically bombarded by fire retardants and fire suppressants. Mm. Uh, there is the effect of fires, wildfires, and that space was also heavily mined, logged, and used for marijuana cultivation. So there are all kind of contaminants there. Their medicinal plants are dying. They can see the color red. There is the fire retardant as kind of a rusty color. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to dissolve, and it's supposed not to be dumped on indigenous sites or close to uh, water streams, mm -hmm. but it is because, you know, it's like, oh, 
we have fire, we need to extinguish the fire. And I understand that we need to extinguish wildfires, but uh, all these contaminants are just basically making it a very toxic environment for many people to live in. And, uh, and so we started putting together this idea of trying to uh, collect samples of soils, figuring out what kind of contaminants there are, and also uh, working with these mycelium species to see how they're going to remediate, how we're going to um, use this knowledge. We cannot bring commercial species in environments that have their own local species. We have done plenty of determination in our <laughs> history. We don't want to exterminate any more species if we can't. Uh, but there are... Um, there are uh, cousins you know some of these oyster uh might have a cousin that is local in that environment mm -hmm. so i study the commercial oyster on campus but then i will be looking at whether this is portable to a cousin species yeah uh and uh, the good thing is that we got together and we're actually going to have our, uh we already submitted the request for a search permit at el dorado national forest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're going to we got it. So we're going to be sampling in El Dorado National Forest. Yeah. Then we're going to have access to Stone Lakes Natural mm -hmm. Reserve, which is uh, close to Old Grove. All kind of stuff is being dumped from the city of Old Grove. And then more recently, uh, Randy Yonemura was talking about the fact that there is a Phillips 66 pipeline mm -hmm. going south that has been sabotaged and oil has basically spilled on this particular area. And indigenous land again. Did this uh, just happen? No, it has happened in the past, but oh, now okay. because we're it's a leftover. It's a leftover, and is extremely active in trying to get together a community of people and constituents who are actually interested in looking at bioremediation techniques to do these cleanups. And so it's been very interesting. I've been talking with schools where we would be teaching some of these techniques to students. Um, and again, we're trying to get together this uh, critical mass of people who care. Uh, we're going to be working with an EPA consultant who's mm -hmm. located in Nevada. He's offered to do some of the pro basically pro bono tests for mm -hmm. some of these mm -hmm. uh, chemicals. I have people on campus that have uh, basically told me they can help. Uh, Thomas Young, Sanjay Perrick, and uh, uh, most recently, uh, George Massa Rodriguez. So are people that are basically are getting together this critical mass of people who are right now going to work for all for free. It's amazing. Until we get some uh, more interest by funding agencies or yeah. you know philanthropy to continue. Could you describe some of the techniques used? Because... You talk about cleaning up this, this land. How do you just go plant a bunch of the mycelium, or is plant the right verb for that? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but do you go put the mycelium in the forest? Do you use a sort of a water filter for these lakes? How would you go about cleaning it? So my um, initial idea for soil is that eventually we're going to create like, like cartridges mm -hmm. that we're going to uh, bury at three feet in the soil mm -hmm. uh, at a particular uh, distance from each other that depends on basically uh -oh. the area that we want to uh, decontaminate. I don't know what's going to be in the cartridge. We have issues like how do we know that it works um, 
we're trying to figuring out figure out if we can uh, um, understand the remediation progress by looking at microbes or even ultrasounds mm. uh, because I'm also working with um, an artist and scientist. Uh, her name is Tosca Teran. She's actually originally from California. She lives in Toronto and she's been able to uh, convert the electrical pulses that are in the mycelium network into sounds. It looks very yeah. science fiction, but we have all kind of artists who are working in biosonification, which has not, again, merged with the scientific mainstream knowledge. But I'm thinking of ultrasounds as a very interesting area in the, in the wave propagation system, basically, where maybe we will find out that there are particular uh, frequencies that are interesting to accelerate the process or okay. uh, oh. yeah, oh. make it faster or slower. I think our episode with Tina Ruli, she was saying the plants would grow faster during yeah, like, certain, you played certain music to it. Guns and Roses. Yeah, Guns, <laughs> yeah, Guns and Roses was played to a plant and it grew faster. So you're thinking of doing like a similar thing with the mycelium to see. In the ultrasounds. Yeah, the ultra, yeah. yeah that's uh, possibly in the ultrasounds. And then, um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, I was talking with uh, Brian Prestel from uh, California Water, uh, Department of Water Resources, who's the person who told me about uh, the pine raisin peach. He was saying, you know, there's an effect of the magnetic field on plants okay. and mycelium. Maybe there is a way to do this with some form of, I don't know, you go there with a circuit and it's AC current and you can mm -hmm. basically change things, but it's it's very it's going to ask it's going to require so much multidisciplinary knowledge and really looking outside the box. The main thing is when can we tell people that it's safe to live there and grow food in yeah. those spaces? And because this is these are areas that are in wild forest, uh, very far from, you know, some of the roads. Uh, we don't want to slap all this heavy equipment around. Yeah. And we want it to be as sensitive, again, to people living there. We don't want to disrupt them. You don't want to be doing stuff if they don't welcome us to do so. Yeah. And with the communication, because I know my son are like, touted as being very intelligent. Are those communication networks different among different species of my son, Or are there things that things you've learned or things that can be drawn kind of across the board? So um, I think that is, uh, it's, um, it's a very mysterious world. Mm -hmm. There are people who are actually mapping the underground. It's, uh, it's called uh, SPUN, S-P-U-N. They're mm -hmm. trying to yeah. figure out what kind of species are there. Some of these species are in symbiosis with uh, the roots of uh, trees yeah. in old growth yeah. forest. Mm -hmm. And I know that mycelium has been around for millions of years. They found a fossil of mycelium from the Democratic Republic of Congo that's one million year old. So this is, a, this is an incredibly fascinating species that we're basically you know, trampling on and we're saying, okay, can you save us? Uh, but the main thing is, again, there is so much... Uh, to study in old growth forests. So if you um, remove the old growth forest for logging purposes, all this knowledge is going to be lost. Yeah. And we're looking at, you know, we're looking at the Congo Basin and the Amazon uh, forest as these incredible 
uh, environments full of species that nobody knows about. We are being, again, uh, <laughs> destroying those spaces. Um, and we also want to make sure to work with people who live there that have this knowledge that, again, we don't want to basically just use the knowledge at our advantage. We want to make sure that we as an international community of scientists, artists, you know, humanitarians, environmental people work together to find a way to save our resources. And if we happen to work with the mushrooms, so be it. Yeah. I think it, it paints a very beautiful picture in, our, in my eyes, at least, because I mean, we don't know enough yet to really understand the limitations of these processes. So we can kind of have these fantastical ideas of how far it could go. But I want to know on your end, what is the ideal vision? And you know, if there were no constraints, what would be the furthest end of the implementation for mycelium? So, uh, if there were no <laughs> limitations, what I would like to do is find a way to work with people from different countries. Um, every every country has a type of cover crop, and we're looking again in situations of food insecurity, uh, very big changes from climate um, issues, etc. And basically, say we have polluted a large part of the earth. Mm -hmm. And we can use some of the cover crops used in some of these countries to um, find ways to clean those countries' soils and water, make them more livable, accessible to everybody, and make sure that we're not destroying any more resources that we already have and that we're not uh, polluting just for the sake of greed. You know, mm -hmm. that's some of the things that I've been very conscious about. I mean, we like thinking that we are, oh, we're using, I have an electric car, great. Well, but parts of the batteries are coming from mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo and somebody's dying because I'm driving an electric car. So it would be really nice not to do that to anybody and trying to, and we're polluting their land. We have arsenic, cobalt, all kinds of problems in some of these areas. It would be nice if we actually, we countries that have, exploited the earth and other countries historically, it would be nice to basically build a little bit of karma points and trying to use our resources to that we accrued through other countries to actually help clean up the mess that we created over, you know, decades and hundreds of years of colonization and exploitation. Yeah. So again, it's becoming all these big... Uh, save the planet Earth and uh, clean up the mess that we made and try not to kill any more people. Yeah. That would be nice too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then it's antimicrobial, oh, it's antibiotics <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But again, I feel like, I think it's important that we feel connected to everybody. We're connected to water. It's one single planet. I think it's, it's time to stop being super selfish and actually trying to do something for everybody's a benefit, not just our own. Um, and again, I think of limitless possibilities of people, you know, traveling, learning languages, learning different ways. So, okay, they use this cover crop in this country. What language, what dialects do they use in the country? I make an effort to understand a bit more about their history so I don't go there with the white savior thing mm -hmm. going to, oh, you know, I'm saving you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, trying to work with people through organizations that are conscious and sensitive to everybody's cultural 
uh, beliefs and history to try not to disrupt as much as we have. Definitely. It's a very, it's a very important <laughs> goal. And hopefully we'll get there. And I think more communication and more, we have the technology now to communicate ac across all these different geographies, cultures, all these different areas. Hopefully we can start to collaborate a bit more and yeah. get closer to that goal. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think traveling is a great experience for people to travel and learn about other systems, other people. So I I would love to travel for this job. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody yeah. out there, can you ship me to whatever? <laughs> That's yeah. So as we kind of wrap up here, it sounds like travel would be one word of advice for students, but how do you want to see students getting involved in where do you think the future of mycelium is going? Um, I think uh, the first step would be for people, for students to feel that, you know, uh, we need to do something together. Uh, they are inheriting a very bad problem. My, I have two kids and I'm worrying about them, the grandkids, the great grandkids. I mean, you know, they're 15 and 10, so no kids in the horizon. Hopefully. <laughs> but I worry about, you know, I worry about the future generations. And I think it's very easy to feel very um, doomed uh, when we look at the kind of the scale of the problem. But I think this is, again, needs to be a call of action of people with different um, perspectives. It doesn't matter if you're an economic student, you're studying economics, you're studying biology or engineering, every problem is going to require a scaling up solution uh, there needs to be a way to make some form of it. If we say to a farm, hey, do this and you'll clean up, you need to make it economically viable for them to go grow cover crop instead of cash crop. We need to find a way to figure out how to make money out of this in a way that is sensitive because people still need to feed their families. So it's important to get all these different parts together. And for the students, again, I would say, um, see if there is any of these huge problems ahead of us that kind of gives you the incentive to do something, learn something out of your comfort zone, learn languages. Uh, we have some of the European languages that are spread across the world because we colonized everybody. But, you know, uh, even just local dialects, Every country has multiple uh, dialects. It would be nice to be able to go there and say, hello, yeah. I am so-and-so in the local dialect. Definitely. And just keep your mind open as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much, Professor Lasso Panada. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Um, thanks, uh, Brent and Keller. And thanks, everybody who's listening to this. Yeah. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.